All right, everyone. Today in the show, we have the great Jeff Schmuck. Jeff's been in the ski industry for 20 years and has worn many different hats, to say the least. Currently, he's the editor for Forecast Ski Magazine, but in this episode, we talk about his experience as the content manager for new schoolers, being part of the athlete selection committee for X Games, and what it's like judging for IF3 and real ski. Jeff has endless stories, so this is just a small look into everything he's done. We wrap up with some listener questions, which can be submitted on our Instagram at Two Planker Pod. As always, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. And that is all we have for the intro. So let's get into it. So here we are with Jeff Schmuck. And uh, Jeff, maybe for the non initiated, tell everybody who you are and what you do. Uh, I'm the editor of Forecast Ski Magazine and the photo editor as well, uh, which is Canada's premier ski publication. Um, I've been in the ski industry for over 20 years because I'm old now. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm also the head judge of the International Free Ski Film Festival, aka IF3. Uh, technically, it's called the International Free Sports Film Festival now that we have snowboarding in the mix and have had it for a couple of years. And then I'm also a Protector Winners Canada ambassador. Busy, busy man. Yeah. Yeah. And I've worn many other hats over over two decades. Yeah. And I got to be honest with you, asking you to do this interview, I almost felt like I wasn't at the level to be able to talk to you. Yeah. Because <laughs> you've just done, you've done so much stuff over the years that we're not even going to begin to scratch the surface of everything that you could talk about or everything that you have expertise in. Um, but we'll we'll give it a shot. Well, thanks for the kind words. I'm always happy to like, you know, interact with people like yourself, breaking into the industry, young people, and just, you know, always made a point of being as busy as I am, being generous with my time with people who are trying to make a go of it and get their start because God knows when I was in the trenches in the very, at the very dawn of free skiing with some of the other guys, there wasn't too many people to help us. So it's, I'm very much about remembering where I came from and paying it forward. Totally. And I feel like that might be a good transition. If you're, uh, if you're down, maybe we could do a little bit of uh, biography on, on Jeff Schmuck and like hear about where it all started and kind of your, at least the, the broad strokes along the way and the big changes that, that you've seen and that you've gone through. Sure. I'll try to condense my history. Um, but as anyone who knows me knows, I'm not good at short stories. I'm pretty long-winded. Um, I started as an athlete when I was like 17 to 20. 22. I was a sponsored skier. I was a lot better at talking than I was skiing, which should come as no surprise to anyone who knows me and, and who anyone's, anyone who's about to listen to this. Uh, so I did that and then I kind of got burnt out on that. Um, and then I guess prior to this, I should start by saying that when I was, when I was 17 years old, um, 16 years old, somewhere in there, this is before the internet existed, which makes me sound extra old. Uh, you know, the way that the only sort of source of ski media at the time was the magazines. So, you know, every September you go down to the, the corner store, or the grocery store and wait for the new issue of powder to come out. So you could see all the new skis and see what movies were coming out and what all the pro athletes got up to and whatnot. And um, it was, uh, it's escaping me whether it was the fall of 96 or 97. I always mix it up, but I went down to the grocery store and I saw the first issue of a new ski magazine that I'd never seen called Freeze. And it was, it's an all girl issue. And <clears throat> I read it cover to cover, like in the grocery store, in the car, like 
walking into my room and when I finished it I had upon reflection it was like kind of an, kind of an epiphany like moment where I was like I think I just figured out what I want to do with my life I, I don't want to be the guys jumping off cliffs in the photos like I want to be the guy writing articles in this so kind of sort of fell into the athlete thing one of my childhood best friends was a ski filmmaker in high school so we kind of all started doing that um and I grew up in Rosalind British Columbia Red Mountain um and part of that crew was uh myself James Heim uh Dane Tudor was a little younger than us there's like a lot of a lot of guys that have since come out of Rosalind and the ski and mountain bike industries and so yeah it started kind of as like a you know the ski movie thing in high school was like kind of a cool way to impress the chicks and scare our grandparents but then it blossomed into something more and we started getting sponsored and after a while I just kind of got burnt out on that just the pressure it just like wasn't fun anymore so I sort of fell into retail I managed ended up working at a ski shop in Vancouver called Comore which I worked at slash managed for like six seven years <clears throat> and then my retail the retail side of my career blossomed from there. And I actually was Forefront Skis' first ever sales rep in 2003 and uh, worked for them for a bit and then switched to Line and was their BC sales rep and their Canadian athlete manager for a couple of years. And then uh, kind of got burned out on that a little bit, just in terms of like the, the sales rep life, as I'm sure any of them will tell you is a tough business because your income is kind of completely dependent upon mother nature. So I was 27, I was broke, you know, like didn't have anything going on, like no house, no girlfriend, anything like that. And I was, and I had just gone on a personal trip. My first time overseas, I went to China. Uh, a friend of mine who I grew up with was working for the Canadian consulate office. So I went over there and hung out in China for a month, which was like super wild, like really eye-opening experience for me. And it, it reignited my previous, fire, passion, what have you, to start writing again. And I should backtrack just for a split second and say in, in the midst of all this, I went to journalism school and got a journalism degree. And when I got out, you know, I pitched myself to all the ski magazines and, you know, the responses were like, yeah, you know, you're a great guy and a good writer, like, feel free to send us some freelance pieces. So it sort of felt like TJ Burke and Aspen Extreme for a bit there, I had that moment. Um, so anyway, to skip back uh, after China, you know, it kind of opened my eyes to the world and it made me want to travel. And concurrently, I was like, yeah, I should go just be a writer. Um, <clears throat> and then I was at summer camp that year uh, up in Whistler and I ran into Doug Bishop, who was like a longtime friend and he was running New Schoolers at the time. And Doug is uh, the type of guy who sort of like really commands honesty, you know, he's like can be a very intense guy. And and in like the best way possible. And, you know, when he kind of asks a question, he'll stare at you intently and, and you feel compelled to sort of pour your heart out to him. He's kind of that type of guy. So he's like, what's going on with you? And so I told him, I was like, ah, you know, like what I do and like, but it's kind of one of those, like, when is the party over type of moments? And then uh, he very cryptically in Doug Bishop fashion was like, that's right. Call me in three weeks. I was like, what? He's like, call me in three weeks, maybe two might be three I was like okay so that a couple weeks later saw the press release that they got bought by a parent company a media conglomerate in Los Angeles called Wasser and Media Group and so I called him and I was like is this what you wanted me to call you about and he's like yeah do you want a job 
And I was like, what job? And he's like, your dream job. Do you want to travel around the world and write articles about skiing? And I, I cried. Right? I'm not ashamed to admit it. Like it was very much one of those like dream come true moments. Like, you know, like that would have been, that was in 2007. So we're talking like 10 years of like trying to navigate my way through the industry, you know, meet the right people, make myself known, not having two nickels to rub together. And then at the 11th hour, it happened. Um, so did that, worked with them for a number of years and it was great. Uh, but during my tenure there, the internet drastically changed, you know, and we were very tuned into the fact that, and I would say in some ways ahead of the curve in the sense that following the inception and subsequent explosion of social media, we, we were aware that people were becoming a lot less interested in reading a thousand word article on the internet as they were pushing play on a video. <clears throat> so my role changed. Uh, I was, you know, kind of transitioned a little bit more into content management and overseeing video production and whatnot. And that was great. It like expanded my repertoire knowledge base and a lot of those things that I learned I've taken with me into future elements of my career, but uh, I wasn't writing anymore and was kind of bummed on that. Uh, so while I was happy working for new schoolers an opportunity organically presented itself for me to become the editor of SBC skier. So I went and worked for them for a couple of years and then the parent company went under not my fault. Um, but you know, when you've got a stable of 10 magazines and four of them are making money, it's pretty simple math and we can kind of leave it at that. Um, and then almost immediately thereafter, because that was like a really weird moment where I was like, well, what now? Right? Like I'm 35, like, what am I supposed to do with myself? And, and very quickly <laughs> a rival publishing group in Canada called King Network. King Publishing at the time, now King Network, um, was owned and operated by a guy named Ryan Stutt, who previously worked for SBC Media. And as opposed to him attempting to buy the SBC Media Group, he decided to acquire uh, a number of the staff from middle management to the sales team to designers to sort of shore up his existing skate, surf, and snow titles. And then he pitched me on coming on board to sort of pick up where we left off with SBC and start Canada's new ski magazine, uh, to which I said, not without my team, it was going to be, you know, I wasn't going to leave anybody behind despite my future being kind of uncertain. Um, and thus forecast was born. Um, and so we're going into our sixth, like seventh year right now, which is kind of crazy. It's like time flies when you're having fun. And then throughout that, I've done various other things. Like I've been involved with IO3 since inception uh, as the director of the awards and then head judge, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, doing stuff with PAL right now, just on a volunteer basis. And then, um, and then yeah, I was also the kind of a, one of the more quote unquote key members of the X Games Athlete Selection Committee for eight or nine years. So that kind of sums it up <laughs> and it wasn't, that, that, that's me condensing it as best I can because I mean we're talking 20 plus years you know yeah and I, and honestly the the part that's the most fascinating to me is um I like talking to you guys who who witnessed the come up of, of freestyle skiing mm -hmm. and like 
the birth of a new sport, really. And so when you were a kid, well, we can even go to when you were like a, a little kid. Like, what was your involvement with skiing prior to trying to be a professional? And then what was the state of professional skiing when you were? Well, I should say, I, I, I don't know that I was actually ever trying to be professional. Like, I was, I was pretty strategic about that in the sense, too, where I was like, I, like I, I knew in my heart I wasn't good enough to make it as like a pro. But I was like, I'm going to enjoy this ride. And through the people I meet, the connections I make, and then going to school for journalism, like the knowledge I'll obtain from journalism school and the connections I make through being a sponsored athlete, I'll, I'll use and abuse those to hopefully land myself this dream job. So I was like very self-aware that it was just like, oh, this is fun. But like, I never really had any big aspirations to like become some you know, ski movie star. Like I had the fear in me that like a lot of those guys don't, you know, like looking over at the edge of like a 50 foot cliff and be like, I don't really know about this. <laughs> yeah. um, but I started to, yeah, bring it back to my youth. I started skiing when I was like two and a half. Um, I, you know, if you grow up in the Coonies, basically you're on skis shortly after you can walk. And it was always like the thing I loved most. And as the years went on, I loved it more because as I got into team sports I quickly realized that I really sucked at those like I was like not a very talented hockey basketball baseball player anything and I was like really put off by like mean coaches just like taking it way too seriously and like yelling at us if we lost a game and it was like dude dude we're 11 like like relax and so that like the, the sort of organized team sport, like I, I kind of developed a bit of a disdain for it. Like I was like, I really don't like this. And it made me love skiing more because I love the individuality of it all. And, and I said no to competing, like racing every, like Red Mountain has like a, a legendary ski racing program. But I just said no every year to being a part of that because for me, skiing was just, it was just so individual, something you did on your own, like you could paint, you know, sort of paint your own portrait on the mountain, go as fast or slow as you want, you know, ski as many runs as you, as you want. And you just weren't beholden to anything, you know? Mm. Um, and the only sort of competition is if you like raced your buddies to the bottom. So I just always loved it. I always had like, like it was, you know, pretty much my favorite thing to do. Um, and then in kind of the, I would say like kind of early to mid nineties, like snowboarding started exploding in popularity. And a lot of my friends switched to that, but I never like, it just never really, I don't, I shouldn't say it didn't appeal to me. Cause I, like I, I can, and I do snowboard from time to time and I love it, but it just kind of seems senseless for me to, I don't know, maybe it was a bit of my teenage ego talking, but seems senseless to like start a brand new sport when I was like getting pretty good at this one. Um, and then there was, uh, there was actually an article that came out about a year or two before freeze that, you know, in many ways equally changed my life as the first issue of freeze did. It was called the planetary snow bohemians will save us all by Rob story and powder magazine. And it was the first article on McConkie and Seth Kreitler, Brad Holmes, I still have the, that article bookmarked on my phone. It's on Power's website. I go like read it once in a while. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh my God, this is so badass. Like skiing's rad, you know, like skiing's not lame. Like 
screw snowboarding. And I like went out and dyed my hair purple like Seth Morrison and bought K2 Extremes when I was like 16. So I was a fan, right? And that then led to the new Canadian Air Force. And I was fortunate enough to like quickly meet those guys, uh, kind of initially through just me working at a ski shop in Vancouver and then, and then working for Forefront in Line and became fast friends with those guys. And yeah, thus like the push began for free skiing to be not just recognized, but taken seriously by the industry. Yeah. And what was the vibe in those early days? Was it, was it kind of a punk attitude? Like you see with, with, you know, how the attitude that skateboarding has had and, and kind of maintained over the years, or was it still, you know, skiing's always a little bit inaccessible and you always have to have a little bit of money to be involved yeah. with it. So like, what was the vibe in those early days? It was pretty, like, it was pretty punk, you know, but it was sort of like, it was kind of like, I can't speak for everybody, but I think there was a sense that we sort of felt like the redhead and ugly stepchildren, children. So we, I think everybody felt compelled to be kind of punk and to make that statement. But we were also sort of working within the confines of like a very traditional industry. You know what I mean? And when I think back to those days, I, I think back to this amazing conversation I had with Jake Burton um, at the trade show and him being like, man, like I'm, and Jake was like, no fan of skiing, right? But it was when I was working for Forefront. He's like, man, good on you guys for like doing what you're doing in the side of the sport. It's like really re-energizing skiing. I love to see it. Like it must be tough to go in those old fuddy-duddy ski shops and try to sell these like crazy twin tips. Say, I'm like, Jake, like, what are you talking, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, like, I'm sure it pales in comparison to what you went through with snowboarding. He's like, yeah, why do you think I don't like skiing? Right? <laughs> I was like, fair enough. But so yeah, it was a bit of a grind, you know, it, it differed from sort of person to person, brand to brand, because there were brands who were like really into it. And I really don't think that Solomon uh, historically, like they, they, they should get all the credit in the world, you know, like it, it's kind of saddened me to see them over the years, like, like the youth forgetting for whatever reason that it was them. It was them and Leventhal who were like the believers in it. And for whatever reason, Solomon suddenly became this like quote unquote lame brand by the core community years ago. And I was like, they're, it's, they're the reason, right? I still like, I, I hang out with Mike Douglas all the time and I still tell him, I'm like, yeah, man, if it wasn't for you, I'd be like still cramming little old ladies feet in the ski boots at Colmore sport check, you know? So, so some brands were super down, you know, Rosinol was in there in the mix, but then other brands were really slow to come around. Right. And they just were very like, you know, button up shirts, like cool, like racing is where it's at. So, you know, it was definitely a push. Right. And I mean, and it's interesting to think that much like snowboarding, like free skiing could have been this like goofy thing, right? Like it could have been like, like snow blades or like some sort of unicycle, like really niche weird thing that never took off were it not for, you know, everybody just like pounding on that door so hard and just and really in, in, a, in a punk sort of way, ramming it down people's throats. Like, you know, this is where it's at. For sure. And, uh, and that time is so interesting to me because, you know, obviously you lived through it mm -hmm. and it's now it's all really like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like now all, everything's been told, but at the time, did it ever seem uncertain? Like, like, oh, this, 
this might be a fleeting, you know, fad or immediately did you think like, okay, this has, this has some staying power. I, I mean, I personally believed in it mm-hmm. from the start. I, I think in that first year or two, it like there, there was risk of that because like people, people have to remember that like there were really only a handful of guys doing it. Right. Like it started with the new Canadian air force. And then the three fills followed shortly thereafter. And then you had the, the U.S. crew of like Tanner, Boyd, Evan, CR. And so there were these kind of like, and everybody was friends. So I, for lack of a better word, there was these kind of like handful of factions that were doing it. So I think in, maybe in the first year or two, it was kind of like touch or go, touch, touch and go, whether it was like how far things could go. But then as you started seeing twin tip sales go through the roof and these few brands that were making them make a bunch of money the domino started to fall and every other brand started making twin tips so i think that was kind of when you know upon reflection when it was like okay this this is happening right and this is this is here to stay but um but it was certainly like certainly a like a big push you know i i think um someone who was peripherally involved in that who also deserves a lot of credit and just in terms of the way people think about skis and new technologies, McConkie, you know, was like a, a big part of that in terms of like some of the stuff he was doing with like the spatula and rocker technology and whatnot. And so all these things were sort of happening at the same time. And I think the industry saw there was money to be made, you know, like, I mean, if no one bought those skis, then yeah, we would have been snowblades, but there was this thirst for, something different in skiing which largely had been i mean the industry had been very damaged by snowboarding like on a financial level and snowboarding was like the cool thing to do and everybody was sort of fleeing in that direction so it really needed that shot on the arm and you know the timing i think turned out to be pretty impeccable yeah and then and so you kind of hinted at it a little bit like with the the flourishing twin tip sales but were there any other signifiers along the way that showed you like yeah this is legit like the general public's taking to it you know i i i, I remember when, like when it entered the olympics i right. thought that was like okay like this is for better or worse this is a big step for the sport but what were some of those early steps where you're like damn this is uh this is taken off like a lot well it being an x games was a big was a pretty it was a big deal right mm-hmm. um you know because we had like and then the u.s free skiing open followed and there was the now defunct gravity games and like obviously the movies were one thing and and johnny de cesare played like a massive role in all this you know like like johnny for those who don't know ran poor boys productions and for everything those guys were doing on like the new canadian air force side of things and then later the three fills and tanner boyd and and evan and all those guys and cr Johnny was kind of the one, the guy where it was like, you know, if, if a tree falls in the forest, right. And, and Johnny documented it all. So he was just like, so integral and in like, you know, putting it out there, what was going on in skiing. But that was one thing, right. Because like, you know, skiers were watching ski movies and what have you, but in terms of like those benchmarks where it started to get like more widespread attention, like, you know, X games was a big one. Like they let them into like, they did a summer big air during summer X games in San Diego, you know, on like a scaffolding jump, which then those guys went in and were doing like 900s and switch 360s and everybody was like, Oh my God. Right. And so that was like a, 
I would say like a pretty big quantum leap um, just in, on the exposure scale for ESPN to say, which are, you know, in many ways, kind of the global leader in sports to be like, you know, we back this, right? That was a huge deal. And, and there's certainly been others between now and then with, I'd say the Olympics being, you know, the biggest, but like you say, nah, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, throughout, throughout this conversation, we'll keep on jumping back and forth between sure. The, your depth of knowledge on free skiing and like your personal experience. So jump into your personal experience. So, I mean, you said that like writing for new schoolers and traveling around, around the world was like your dream come true. Basically were you can growing up, were you only big on free skiing magazines? Like, was that the only thing you were reading or were you big on like, you know, novels or fiction, nonfiction, whatever, like, was it just skiing that you were consuming or were you like stoked on other authors too? No, I've always been like a really big reader. Like, I mean, I was, uh, everybody, everyone has to be a nerd about something in life, as they say. And, and mine was like, mine's Lord of the Rings. You know, like I love those books growing up. I still do. Um, so I would read those like probably once a year growing up. And so Tolkien was like hugely influential on me just in terms of his descriptiveness. And I think some, some of that has bled into my own writing style. Um, you know, it's cliche to say, but of course I love Hunter S. Thompson and still do. I mean, I'm a writer, so you gotta love Hunter. Otherwise, you know, you're in the wrong profession. <laughs> um, so I read a lot of fiction. Um, <laughs> this is kind of a random story. I don't think I've ever told this publicly before. When I was 12 years old, I saw JFK, like Oliver Stone's movie on the JFK assassination. I became obsessed with solving the Kennedy assassination when I was 12. And so I started reading these like 600 page, like political books on like the Kennedy assassination when I was like 12, 13. And I was like, yeah, I gotta figure this out when I'm older. I'm gonna like figure out the Kennedy assassination. But then I figured out how much law school costs. And I was like, yeah, screw that, you know? Uh, But I think that that was sort of the inception of my interest in politics which I am very engaged in and, and just, and then when I started traveling and it just kind of furthered opened my eyes to the world, it made me take like a much more vested interest in, you know, what was going on outside of my own backyard because as, as awesome as all the traveling was and, and it was, it had a tendency to make me feel a bit insulated at times because it was like, you know, fly to the same airport, get on the same train, shuttle bus, go to the same ski hill that you've been going to for a couple of years. And all your friends from Whistler and Colorado were there in the same hotel. You know, you party, you ski, you party, you ski, get on the shuttle bus or train, go back to the airport and go home. And I was like, no, there's, there's, there's more than this. And I, and I, I saw it as like a really phenomenal opportunity to step outside my comfort zone and learn, learn about the world. So a number of us would always do what we call the like tourist days where we'd always like tack on like a couple days before after a competition or film shoot and we would just like go and travel and that was like as important to me as like some of the ski stuff and it, it really yeah definitely like inspired my interest in like global affairs so i i have now i have a tendency to read a lot of non-fiction books about that like you know not that we'll delve into this in this podcast, but like, cause it would take way too long, but like I, I've spent a bunch of time in the Middle East. I tend to go to the Middle East for vacation because when I go on vacation, I'm like, oh, I should go somewhere where I could like never 
ski and I won't get to go for free. And that's kind of Africa and the Middle East. So I, I went to Egypt for about a month in 2008 and was really fascinated by the culture and just like that part of the world and all the conflict that's going on. And so I just sort of dove headfirst into learning all about that. So I, I could tell you about like the history of Islam, you know, and then the Middle East as a whole. And I've done like a ton of reading about that. So I'm very much like a bookworm on that. And, and I think a big part of the reason why is it's, it's important for me to have like some separation from skiing and some balance in my life as opposed to, cause when I was younger, it was just ski, 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 ski. And uh, it's nice to kind of have something else. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love that you brought up Hunter S. Thompson because that's the that's the first thing I thought of when you described your job at New Schoolers. Cause I just finished reading um oh. Hell's Angels. And it's like okay, yeah, your, yeah. your job was begging to to be told like those stories to be told in that fashion. Like you in, you embed yourself in the ski community and then yeah. tell it from like kind of a uh like give it like give the the Jeff Schmuck twist on what on what's happening, you know? Well, it's tricky, right? Because he like he's such a a celebrated writer he's such a legendary figure that like he's one of those writers that like imitation is like not flattery you know like you you, it's his writing is this kind of like hollowed ground type of thing where you don't try to copy him right and god knows if i had a nickel for every time throughout my various media positions in this industry that I've been pitched on like, hey man, we wanna get a red convertible and like drive from LA to Aspen or whatever. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Fear and loathing, right? Like, <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that, man, like I would be living on a private island in Dubai right now. But, um, so certainly he's like an inspiring writer and that Hells Angels book in particular is like, if I'm ever like kind of stuck and having writer's block, which happens all the time, I'll go and just like randomly open up that specific book and just read a couple pages to kind of like get the brain going. Um, so I was sort of conscious of that. Like I never wanted to try to like emulate him in a sense, but certainly, you know, in those new schoolers years, there were some, uh, let's say less exuberant Hunter S like uh, fear and loathing times, you know, <laughs> those were, those were the good old days, lots of partying, you know, lots of, uh, lots of road life. I had winters where I was home like three weeks between December and May and it was great. Where like the thought of doing that now like horrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like no spring chicken anymore. Yeah. And so before we deviate too far from the literary interests, mm-hmm. I got to ask, so what was your best theory that you came up with for JFK? What was your, what was, what's the most likely oh, theory? I mean, obviously there was, an, there's another shooter, right? The grassy knoll. Like, is, it, is it just on the grassy knoll or is there also one in the sewer shooting upwards? No, I think there's just two. I, I haven't looked too much into the sewer thing, but if you, if you watch the, the Zapruder film, like clearly the way his head is, reacting to the bullet direction like there's definitely a second shooter i mean i gotta think that the cia was some somehow in the mix i'm the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist i I should preface this by saying that like i 
conspiracy theories are, are fun until they're not, which is a statement for our time right now. Um, but, you know, he wanted to disband CIA. Like, there had to be some sort of, you know. Yeah. I just think it's, I think it's so funny that as a 12-year-old, you got really engaged with, with that of all things to be engaged with. Yeah. You know what? It could have just been two assholes too, right? Like, that's the other thing, you know? Like, you look at, like, presidential security then and now, it's like, now the president drives around in, like, in the beast, which can withstand a missile strike. Where here, there, he's just cruising around a convertible wavy. Like, it could have been, like, two Texas good old boys that were, like, let's kill him, right? It could have been as simple as that. Who knows, right? Yeah. But I think that there was there's some complexities there. I mean, who knows, right? I, if I was ever elected president, which won't happen because I'm Canadian, uh, but think of the campaign signs. If I if I could run schmuck just everywhere, all over like <laughs> North Dakota, flyover country, the you know the two th first things I would ask would be about that and aliens. I think, you know, like uh, bring me the Kennedy files, the Air Force One, while we're on the way to Area 51. You know, yeah, I want to know everything. <laughs> Very funny uh, to imagine a, an alternate universe where you're like the foremost scholar on on the JFK assassination, world-renowned right. author, cracking the code. Yeah, I, I'll tell people the, the two more little-known facts about Jeff Schmuck was that's one of them. And when I was 14, I was a tennis prodigy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm ambidextrous, so I would like switch hands with a racket and like the tennis pro or quote-unquote instructor in town was like telling my mom like oh he's really good there's only a couple pros in the world could do this but then no one wanted to play with me so I would just be like at the tennis court just like hitting a ball against a wall by myself and it was just like really sad <laughs> you know and short white shorts weren't exactly fashionable at the time so I was like yeah maybe this isn't gonna work yeah so so that could have been another alternate reality you know yeah Wim Wimbledon, Wimbledon and all that but I'm happy with that how things turning out how they did <laughs> yeah for sure I mean it's definitely it's definitely been a uh, interesting path that you chose yeah nonetheless um so looking at your looking at the new schoolers writing was it Ooh. mainly confined to competition or were you like joining up with these film crews and documenting like the behind the scenes of what they were doing as well because those are kind of Two different worlds yeah that happened later like the first couple of years it was largely event focused you know um mm. a lot, lot of competition coverage um and then i think those opportunities to go and shoot with film companies came as 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 new schoolers as a media source uh, obtained more respect from the industry because when i came on board there and, and not to discount or disrespect or just diss any previous efforts but there were large segments of the industry that sort of viewed it as like the bathroom wall of the ski industry and and you know one of the things Doug said to me when they brought me on was like we need you to make this real right like we need someone out there like in the wild to make us pr more present to make it seem like you know, we're more front-facing, we exist more as opposed to just like a ski website of people talking shit, right? And and he was like, and frankly, like, I remember him saying to me, like, you know, we're like, we're dorks, like we're nerds, right? Like we play Dungeons and Dragons and like, we're kind of like internet guys. And 
where like you're cool and like you know all the athletes already and like you know all these people so like and we don't like traveling and you want to so like go out there and do your thing and so it started with a lot of event coverage and then as the site built and built and built um those opportunities started coming our way to like go out with like poor boys and, and tgr and whatnot but it was trickier than working for a magazine because if you're gonna like the cost of going on like a two-week film shoot for one article on the internet you know it's like it was tough to justify just in terms of like how much ad dollars you're bringing in and whatnot and that at a certain point that became even like more prevalent of a thing where we were looking at like starting to look at how much money we were bringing in versus like how much like an article was quote unquote worth in terms of like clicks and you know banner ad placement and all that and so it was just like not an unjustifiable expense to go and do stuff like that but it was like a little trickier you know but definitely i got to go on some of some of the cooler trips i've i've been on during that time like i went to iceland with tgr which was awesome i went to japan with for my second time with solomon um went to poland um, with Solomon Frisky TV as well. And that was a wild trip. It was like, the skiing was terrible. Sorry to anyone from Poland listening to this, but the cultural aspect of it was awesome. So, um, so yeah, that sort of happened like later. And, and I became much more interested in that in my, towards the end of my tenure at New Schoolers because I still could, you know, not to sound any way, shape or form cocky. It's just, I've been doing it for so long that like I could write an X Games coverage article with like my high schools now. Right. And it wasn't, it just felt like a lot of the same going from event to event to event to event. And I wanted to get into more long form stuff, which I was starting to do. And that's ultimately led, what led me to be like, I, I want to do this all the time. And the best way to do that is to work for a magazine. Mm -hmm. And we'll circle back to that. But now I'm, now I'm pulling it back to the, uh, the cultural aspect of it. So mm -hmm. I love talking to people who get paid to care about the culture of skiing because yeah you know, you guys really have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. So my question, and like, it's the same one that I post twig who does, who now does the content at news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know twig. Twig's awesome. Yeah. So it, so what's driving and maybe even historically, like what drives the culture in skiing? Because there's the competition side and the film side. And I feel like the competition side used to, you know, that used to be a big, big part of the culture. Like the, like the battles between Simon Dumont and Tanner Hall, but now it doesn't seem as immediately obvious that um, that people really care about the competition side of it as much as they once did. Are you speaking in context of the park and pipe segment of the industry or? Yeah, yeah. The park and pipe, like the free ski side of it exclusively. Right. Just like, 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 and when you say free ski, you mean just like the freestyle oriented segment. Yeah, of exactly. It. Like what, like yeah. basically put in like a simpler, like, like, what's getting people the most stoked about free skiing? I think, I, I think edits, online content, you know, and it's always been that way. No, it's definitely like the competition thing was like, was like a, it was a big thing in the early days, you know, like I, I, I feel like our sport hit this like really interesting turning point in, and I've said this before, like kind of around 2008, 2009, where prior to that, if you wanted to be like 
the top pro skier, it would the, like the, the pathways were the, either just to win X games or get closing segment at like MSP or poor voice movies. And so I would sort of relate it to like the park and pipe side of the industry was kind of like a, a tree trunk. And then in like 07 to 09, it like tree br like branches grew in different directions and people started doing different things where like, you know, you still had your comp guys, but then Pollard and Pep and Andy Mayer started like, you know, skiing no poles in the backcountry with like Eric, Eric Iberg's movie Idea. And then, and Iberg made royalty and like the, the whole style component came into play. And you started seeing the inception of video series from like what you also was doing, Solomon, Free Ski TV, Line Traveling Circus. Everybody just kind of like went and to basically established different paths to maintaining a career as like a, a professional skier. And subsequently that's when you saw like, I mean, we, we definitely felt it at New Schoolers. That's when like a lot of like the, the shit talk started because people were sort of picking their lanes, like what they liked and didn't like, and then sort of debating the others. Um, so I would say that the, the comp scene was really, there was much more of like a hyper focus on it prior to that, that, that transitional period. And then you started, like I say, people branching off in different directions and the internet was exploding and content consumption, of course, has dramatically changed over the years where there's, there's so much online content being produced. And there was when I was at New Schoolers and now with social media, like everybody's getting it out there. So I would say that, and I can't speak for everybody who's obviously like a park and pipe ski customer, but I think that that provides like it's kind of what gets people a little bit more jazzed up nowadays just like seeing footage of people doing their thing versus the comp side of things and I also think part of the reason for that is that like you know comp schemes changed and it's it's in many ways become less attainable for for a lot of skiers out there you know when you I mean when people are you know you think of people like in your region, like kids in the New England region, when they see like triple corks being thrown at slope style contests, well, do they think to themselves, well, I'm never gonna have access to like the type of jump where I could learn to do that. So does that create like a certain sense of disinterest in like what's going on in the comp scene? And obviously like with the Olympics, you know, things changed and we knew things would change. Like I, I, I foresaw a lot of it just with like teams and you know, the sport's becoming a little bit more specialized and, and the cost of being involved. So right now, and I was just saying this to someone last week, I think what the bunch is doing is like one of the more important things that's happened to that segment of our sport in a long time. Um, in that like they've made, they've, that group has single-handedly made the sport seem more accessible, mm -hmm. you know? And in many ways, it's kind of one of the closer things to skateboarding that we've had in skiing, where it's like, grab a pair of skis and go. Like, you know, make the make your backyard, the streets, your personal ski hill, and like make a dollar out of a nickel. And so I think what those guys are doing is really important. And I think you see people responding so well to that because I th like I, I, I know I talk to kids who are like, have told me when they see people throwing triples and quads, it's like they, they just sort of gave up. Right. They were like, well, what now? Like, we're never going to be able to do that. Like, or so they think, right. Um, just in terms of the accessibility factor of it all. 
So, so yeah, I would say that just content is driving, you know, like online content. I still think movies are a big thing. You know, a lot of them are obviously featured online, but, um, but I still think they're really, really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm still learning about like the history of skiing and like establishing this mental framework to understand where it's currently at. So I have a pretty mm-hmm. good understanding of like how the competition scene works today and like how kids come up through it. And a lot of people talk about like the old days and how it's different. So how did it used to be? Because everyone talks about, oh, it used to be more accessible and now it's not accessible. So, so what was it like before, you know, whatever caused it to, you know, have all these like barrier century, basically. There was less regimented of a pathway. You know, there was a lot more open events that like anybody could go to. Like the U.S. Free Skiing Open, which Freeze put on back in the day was like, like the coolest thing because you would be in the start gate and you would see Yoon and Tanner standing next to like a 15 year old kid from New Hampshire who could just enter the same contest as them. Right. And so that in itself created accessibility and subsequently opportunities for a lot of these guys to come out of nowhere. Like you look at like TJ Schiller, right? Like 17 year old kid from silver star in Vernon BC here you know, wrote his high school provincial exam, his final exam, got on a plane the next day, went to Colorado. Like we up here knew about him, but by and large, the ski industry didn't. Went to US Open and he won, right? Like kind of rags to riches. And now it's with the current state of play, it's, it's harder to do that. Like there's obviously the World Cups, you know, like th- those, those can be complicated, but it, in some ways provides for opportunities for more unknowns to, to get in, but you have to be on a team, right? Um, but a lot of those, like, like there's way less competitions now than there was back then, right? Like, I mean, there used to be like three Dutrovers, you know? There used to be like a couple X Games. There was the US Free Skiing Open, the North American Open, the Vermont Open, like, uh, North Face Park and Pipe Open. Like there was all these like events for for just more again more opportunities for kids to to get noticed and turn heads and make a name for themselves. So it's it's yeah it's it's very much changed in that sense and and also like you know there was a lot of stories like rich storylines back then like you referenced like Tanner and Simon right and like that sort of battle slash rivalry. Um, some of which was manufactured by ESPN, you know? Like, I mean, there was competitive tension between those guys, but like they were friends, you know? And you don't see as much of those like rich storylines anymore in, in free skiing, just in terms of like some of the rivalries that did or didn't exist or the way they were presented. Like now it's just kind of like everybody going and doing their thing, you know? So I think that those types of things like really generated interest, like, who will win between Sarah and Tyne and like, will Jen Hudak beat Sarah Burke? Like, you know, there was just like, there was more narratives to, to go along with those early comp days, right? And I think that that caused people to like want to tune in more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's like the basis for for interest in in sports. Sports, Pro- yeah. Probably speaking, yeah. It's like, totally. you, have to, you have to be invested in the storyline, whether you're invested in the person's story and like whatever they're overcoming at the moment, Yada yada yada. So do you um, tr- like Tom, Tom Brady gets traded to or goes to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers wins the Super Bowl, right? Exactly. 
So do, what do you attribute like the lack of storylines to now? Because just speaking, frankly, nobody's like super stoked on competitions. Like, do you attribute that to like bad producing or like just like poor everybody gets along? <laughs> everybody know? gets along, yeah. Yeah, like I mean, the, there was there was more like professional rivalries, like like a little bit more ego back then. It was like it was still a little bit more like punk rock, like you know, like a lot of those guys that were coming up, like they were right after like those kind of like early guys. Right. So there, there, there was that sense of like, there was still that fighting spirit, I think in those, those early days to be like, we need to show the world what's up. Right. Like it's like us against them. Like, you know, so I, so you, you saw like a little bit more of that. Um, but I think also like, we is like everybody gets along really well and i i think a large part of that sadly is is like our community has been shaken to its core by people we've lost you know and we've lost some of the biggest icons in our sport between mcconkey and cr and sarah and jp and you know and as someone who was friends with all of them like it shook me to mine and i and over in the course of that, I think you, like if there were differences between the odd groups of people, like you saw a lot of that put aside, a lot of that squashed. And there, it's it's not that there was there's always been a ton of camaraderie in free skiing. I don't want anyone listening to this think that like everybody hated each other and there was like beefs, but like you know you had the odd one. There's bad apples in every bunch. But I really saw like and even you know amplified sense of strengthening and the coming together of our community after losing too many of our own um so so yeah i think it's just like it's harder to create those narratives it's kind of like cramming a square peg into a round hole you know what i mean yeah definitely i think that that is really that a really that is a really good perspective i think another another issue with it and i was talking about this recently is it's not always obvious where to watch the competitions, you know, right. like perhaps I'd be more excited about a big finals coming up. If I could see any, literally anything leading up to it, you know, yeah. like, like a lot of these competitions seem like they happen in the dark. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it's the finals. And you're like, well, I don't really care about this. Cause I didn't see any, any of the steps that it took to get here. Like, I'm just saying, okay, yeah, these are the best people right now. You know, you maybe hear like a whispering of who's like who you, who they think will win. And then, and then that's it. That's like a one day thing. Meanwhile, you know, like every other major sport, people are watching throughout the season, getting excited about the championships. Yeah. And then yeah. it finally happens after the culmination of every single individual game. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about like the world cups, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm like, Oh yeah. It's like finals earlier today. I'll like go on Twitter and see who the top three were. Right. Um, part of that's just me being a little bit more disengaged and like, like not having my finger admittedly is on the pulse of the park, the competition park pipe scene as I used to. And just as part of getting older and just my, my current role. But, um, but, you know, I, I still think that there's like a lot of engagement for X games, you know, like there was some drama there this year. Oh, totally. You know? yeah. And, and, you know, as, as someone who was within those fences years ago, like, like it sounds terrible, but it's like, when there's drama like that, it's, it's like, 
kind of a good thing. Like I see it as a good thing because I'm like, cool. It's like, that creates interest, that creates discussion, that creates debate. Like that's what these events need. Like that's what, you know, for me, certain years they're missing. And we certainly had that over the years when I was judging real ski, you know, we would go from like, like uh, a year ago, a kid yelled at me in public in, in, here in Vancouver where I live uh, because we didn't give Mango the gold medal. This, like I was like in a mall going up an escalator and this kid was coming down and he stared at me and I won't repeat what he said because there was, it was rather vulgar, but he let me know he wasn't very happy with like a judging decision I had made two years before that. And I just laughed. I was like, this is awesome. Like, that's great. You know, like that people are so engaged and so passionate and they care so much. And so you saw a bit of that next games this year. And then I think, uh, you know, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about this, but like for all the, the cons about the Olympics, which people seem to love to talk about more than the pros, um, it, it's, it's generated a lot more interest in free ski. You know what I mean? Like in terms of like people's engagement level. And part of that is because the Olympics in a nutshell is all about like cheering for your, your countrymen and women, right? So I was watching the 2018 Olympics here at my house with Mike Douglas and my brother-in-law texts me and he was watching half pipe and my brother-in-law like he knows about skiing right through me but like he snowboards casually like recreationally at best he's not engaged in any way shape or form in free skiing and he starts texting music man the judges screwed noah and i was like what are you talking about right he's like oh noah bowman's run was like the best man and i was like you don't like yeah it was awesome right and oddly, I agree that he should have got a better score, but like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so Mike and I got in this like very interesting, like philosophical discussion. We were like, oh, how interesting. Because like the Olympics can, has the, the power of that event. Like it can, it can take someone who knows nothing about the sport they're watching and make them engaged, right? And make them disagree, make them debate, make them discuss. And so that has done a lot on the exposure meter for free skiing. I mean, in 2014, ski halfpipe was the fourth highest rated sport mm -hmm. on TV, you know? So that's, so you see some sort of like debate, drama storylines there with the Olympics, you know? And I, 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 from like a media perspective, I thought 2014, like our first kick at the can at that, couldn't have gone any better from like a media perspective because it was like both sides were very well both sides of like our sport from like the raw punk rock like core side of it to like the pr more prim and proper were very well represented between Gus rescuing you know the stray dogs the puppies the Russian puppies and win a date with Nick Epper to Henrik being like, Wu Dang is for the children and Torin ordering 14 Big Macs from like the Free McDonald's and the Athlete Village and like Yahoo doing an interview with him about it. I was like, this is, this couldn't be better, right? Just in terms of like the attention it was getting because you had like, you know, the more sort of well, like proper guys be like, oh, like that's really cute. Like Gus, like how nice, how awesome of Gus to like save these dogs and like, oh, cool that Nick's doing this charity thing. And then, but then on the other side is like, you see that kid talk about Wu-Tang in the Olympics? Like, so some, so the Olympics has brought a little, like I, I, I see shades of that 
in the games every year because I think because people just kind of get revved up about it. So mm-hmm. I see shades of what we used to have in X Games, you know? Yeah. And like a point of clarification uh, for the audience, like when I say that that people aren't interested in competition, it's it's not that the, the competition or the athletes aren't interesting because no. because no. it is interesting and the athletes are interesting. It's the it's that the companies that hold the media rights don't do a good job with it and don't turn it don't turn it into like what it has the potential to be because it can like you just said it can be really engaging and really like funny and interesting yeah it's you know there's there's just like i think there's a little less storyline oriented drama and i think for some of them it's like sometimes it's hard to ram a square pig into a round hole Mm -hmm. you know like you know there was uh i was gonna tell a story but i probably shouldn't on air (laughs) (laughs) no it's all right it's like I, i know exactly what you're saying like you can't force drama where there is none you know no. like if everyone's getting along and everyone's cheer and everyone's stoked when the other person succeeds that's not like really great tv yeah, so, i'll tell you i'll tell you after we're done <laughs> <laughs> all right sounds good um, sorry listeners <laughs> yeah so we'll uh we'll transition so they're not um left with uh, audio blue balls i guess you could say on that story <laughs> so um you're judging i'd like to like get your perspective on that because and uh, uh, again a lot of similarities between uh this conversation the conversation with twig judging is such a tough job and i just like to and you've been at the highest level of it and i just want to understand your perspective especially like when you first got into it versus how you've refined it over time and like been probably more considerate with your decisions or 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 however it's evolved over time in some people's eyes maybe yeah. <laughs> I, I mean i get yeah I, i've i think it's fair to say i would have been at the highest level on the video side of things but yeah. i have um gone to great lengths to avoid uh judging live slope style big air and half pipe competitions there was a bit of a uh, bit of a mini movement for me to step into that role after some of the longtime legendary judges of like x games and do tour and the events went on to different things. And I recall telling one of my superiors at ESPN that they could offer me $100,000 to judge for the weekend. And I would tell them, can I swear? Yeah, yeah. Can I swear? Okay. Okay, I'm just trying to be professional. Yeah. That they could go fuck themselves, right? I was like, there's no way I'm doing that. So, so the respect I have for what those guys do, because I've sat in that booth at x games like if you want to be absolutely horrified and feel more stressed than you've ever felt go sit in the x games judging booth during big air it is like it's dizzying it's a sight to behold how intense it is right so what those guys are doing at least from my perspective is like on a different level than what i've done on the judging side of things because i judge video stuff mm-hmm. where we have the luxury of watching them again and again right as opposed to yeah if i could just interrupt you there for a moment so like what is happening in that booth because a lot of people i've heard that before that it's like many people have described it as like the worst job in skiing basically so yeah. like so what is that what is going on in that room and how how quick do they need to make these decisions like that okay crap let's give it this number time for the next person to drop in well I, yeah i think that event in particular big air be at x games because of the format because it's jam format it 
I mean, just, just from my vantage point, sort of on the peripheral looking in, mm. it's the worst. Uh, I would say, I think it's like 25 seconds max for them to make a decision because the next guy's going, right? Mm. And it, it, it's changed a bit with like their new scoring system over the past two years that they've done, which I think has its pros and cons as well. Um, I think it's made it easier for the judges, but it's sort of harder to follow as a viewer. And I've given, they've asked, they still ask for my feedback on that. But, um, but yeah, it's like, it's really gnarly. And, and the one thing I'll say about judging, and I say this all the time is I, I totally understand, appreciate and respect when people are upset about it. Right. Like from particularly from the athlete side of things, cause it's, it's their career and livelihoods and also the public because they like who they like. And again, kind of like what I was saying earlier, like that passion, that debate, that discussion, like that's so important for our sport than just everybody agreeing, you know? Um, but I also think that the judges, and this might be controversial to say, I don't know, but like, I think that they should be cut some slack more often than not, because what people seem to fail to remember, and I've said this to athletes to their face before at X Games when they're like a volcano erupting in the athlete lounge about the judging. Judges can make, and I'm not saying they do, but they, they can make a mistake on a score as easily as a skier can miss a grab on a trick, right? So if an athlete's not expecting perfection of them, like there's no such thing as perfection except for Patrick Swayze, um, but rest in peace, Pat. Um, if an, like there's no such thing as perfection. So like if an athlete shouldn't be expecting perfection of themselves, they don't expect per perfection of themselves. And as a viewer, you're not ex expecting perfection of your favorite athlete. You should extend the same courtesy to the judges, you know, like they're only human, right? Like they're, they're, they're not going to get it right every time in every single person's mind. And that is the other thing with judging is, is that it can be very subjective, right? Particularly on the video side of things. And I, and I say this, and I've said this over the years to when people have been upset, whether it's an athlete or a production company, I'm like, and, and, you know, some might accuse this of being a cop out, but I'm like, we're not necessarily right. You know, there's five of us in a booth sitting watching these videos or movies or slope style run, but more so on the video side of things. And we collectively came to this decision, but there might be a thousand people out there that disagree with us. And like, that's okay. Like, that's actually good. You know, it's like, it's our opinion, right? Like, and again, this is very much on the film side of things. So, so I don't know, like, I just, I'm obviously on this side of the fence on this because I've, I've been on the receiving end of like, you know, the bruntness of it all. And which is fine. Like, it's like, you, you got to know what you're signing up for, right? Like, if you don't have a thick skin when you start judging these things, you're, you better develop one real quick. Otherwise, you're not going to last long, right? But uh, one of my philosophies on it is, is that, and I started to develop this when I started being on the athlete selection committee for X Games was that for, for the athletes and on the film side of things, the film producers, it's personal. For us, it's business, right? And you have to look at it as that because 
I remember when I first got asked to be on the athlete selection committee, for example, and I was like, oh my God, like what an honor. Like, it's kind of feeling all whims at days of school and nostalgic. Like I never thought I'd be in this position. And then they send you a spreadsheet with 30 of your friends' names and they're like, pick 12. And you're like, oh shit, right? So you have to throw your personal sort of like opinion and relationships out the window and you have to treat it as business. Like I like to joke that I'm a prick when I judge, you know, like I, like I pretend I hate everybody because you have to like detach yourself from like the, the emotional side of it in terms of like your personal relationships and if it's going to benefit someone, what have you. So you kind of have to be like, kind of have to be a bit of a hard ass, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, so it's tough on those guys. You know, I just think that like, that's kind of one of my big things that I always say is like, yeah, I get it. Like, fair enough. Like, I agree with you. I thought that that guy should have got scored higher too, but like, you, you can't expect perfection, right? Like they're not going to get it right in every, they're not going to get it right every single time in every single person's mind. Right? Yeah. And I think part of the issue too, is that like the word judge, a lot of, a lot of people like collectively as a society, we view the judge as like an arbitrator of truth, you know, like their right. word, it's objective and, and it's a fact, but a judge in a, in a law setting and a judge in a, in a film, in a film contest setting is very different. Like judge, judges study for years and it really takes a lot of work to get there. And on the, and on the film judging side, like you guys still need to cut your teeth and it, there's still a lot of work required. Yeah. At the end of the cool. day, you guys are just people that are really stoked about skiing. Yeah. It's, and, it, and, like, and you've just been tasked with choosing like the favorite and like it, it, to the best of your abilities, you know? Yeah. It's, and, and therein lies another difference between that and like judging like a live competition where like those guys would like, they have like a little bit more of, for lack of a better word, like a little bit, not more, but a little different sense of responsibility in terms of getting it right, you know, where on the film side of things, we have the luxury of being subjective, right? Because it's, there's so many components that go into it from the skiing to the editing, to the cinematography, to the way it's presented, the storyline, what have you, right? So we have a little bit more leeway there um, where we are kind of essentially judging in many ways style, like, or film style, but it's always weird to judge art, you know? Like it's like, it's, and, and yeah, man, like it is a lot of work. Like IF3 is like, I mean, we watch this past year was 14 and a half hours of ski movies that we watched. Um, we've had years when it's been like 23 and it's like, it's a lot, you know, like you kind of feel like clockwork orange at the end with like the eyes being pried open and like, you know, like, the whole like, oh, it turns out there's such a thing, it's too much of a good thing, right? But when you see so much of it, you know, it helps you kind of hone your skills. Like you, like you, you know what works and what doesn't. And we're pretty, we're pretty good at that. Like we don't have like, we surprisingly like don't, we'll have the odd like heavy debate, but like we've all been kind of doing it for long enough that we're, we're on the same page and and in many ways, real ski over the years was like that too. Like everybody like knows what they're doing, knows what they're talking about. We've been doing it for a long time. But, um, but again, like 
you know, we have the freedom to like have our own opinion. Right. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point when, uh, after you've seen so many movies and just like seen everything, basically, are there some cliches in ski movies that stick out to you that you're like, dude, like, why did you, why, why even bother? Like, don't waste my time with, with that cliche. Like what are any stand out to you in particular? Oh my God. How long, much longer do they have? Um, (laughs) You know what? It's, it's more trend oriented, right? Like where we, we would, we see like, we see like funny trends in ski filmmaking where if a film with like a really good storyline comes out and wins awards or it's like beloved and talked about, then you'll see like a couple of years ago, we had this, we had like a, a, a number of films more so on the amateur side of things that were just like putting in narration for the sake of it, you know, just like having a narrative for the sake of the narrative, like, you know, going out and finding your soul in the mountains and it's, it's you know it's it's not about the destination it's the journey or just like and not to, you know to pull back the curtain a little bit but not to be rude but it's just like oh puke like come on guys <laughs> right like best, yeah and and just things being replicated that we've seen before um you know i i, I think a large part of it and a lot of filmmakers would tell you this they've gone through this it's like a lot of them that are starting out have like an emotional attachment to their footage. So it's like hard to like, hard to, hard to kill your darlings, you know, and leave things on the cutting room floor. Um, but that, that's one that stands out. It's just like a narration or a narrative without a point, you know, it's like, okay, like, what are you trying to say here? You know, like, it's like the first rule of journalism. It's like who, what, when, where, and why do we care? Right, that's like one of the first things I was taught in journalism school. It's like, <clears throat> like, what are you trying to say? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What else is you know like the the, the cliche, time old things and like cliches from ski movies like slow mo shots of bald eagles and like you know <laughs> like like getting shut down. You know what I mean? Like there's just where segments are like a miss like oh we went there and it didn't work out it's like okay well we don't we don't care you get to the skiing you know (laughs) i don't know it's a long list you know but 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 it very much changes from year to year like we see it sort of moves and ebbs and flows where we'll see like a lot of the like last year and not that this was a bad thing but everybody was like shooting everyone had super eight in their movies we were like oh my god it's super eight year like everybody got themselves like a super eight camera this year what is going on right and so it's kind of funny when you watch all like 40 50 films at once to see a lot of them doing the same thing you know so yeah there's there's lots of cliches I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, this, and this year to year like especially on the if3 side of things because we maybe we talk about real ski if if we yeah. have time but on the if3 side are things judged how do i phrase this on the i3 side is the criteria for judging the same year to year or is it yeah. or is the judging in the context of what skiing currently is so it's always changing no, i mean we're judging films right so it's it's pretty similar year to year but I, I i think it'll we're actually having a call next week about mixing up the awards categories uh just to kind of freshen it up for the public's sake and ours and obviously with like powder and snowboarder being gone you know 
there's an opportunity to kind of like take a look at what they were doing and just kind of freshen things up. So, so with different awards, like that could lend itself to a different sort of way of judging or just in terms of how we look at things. But by and large, like you're looking at, for I3, we're looking at two things. We're looking at like the overall film component, which doesn't really change in terms of like what's best editing, what's best cinematography. There's certainly films that go above and beyond in that area year to year. And then on the athlete side of things, just kind of like the athletic per performance, right? So it's more sort of like, I would say how the films are presented will dictate how we judge them, you know, just in terms of like their overall level of quality. If, if it's something completely different we haven't seen before. So, you know, like the Bunches movie stood out for us with just being something totally different. And we've seen other films like that too, where you kind of have those standouts and you're like, whoa, this is like totally different. Like we got to have a discussion about this, right? And, you know, there, there, there was a really interesting sort of moment for me years ago was the year that End of the Mind came out from Sherpas. And I remember we were having this big debate about like Into the Mind versus Level One's movie and Sweet, Sweet Grass and like all these things. And I was sitting at the head of the judging table and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa everybody like take a step back for a second. Like, let's recognize how awesome this is. Like our nominees for film of the year, are, like this like mind blowing visual, weird masterpiece with Sherpa Cinema Into the Mind. We've got like a fictional narrative into the wild meets the beach with Sweetgrass's Valhalla. We've got a behind the scenes documentary on the making of Ski Movie while you're watching that Ski Movie with Field Productions film. And then we've got like a classic, put it on the TV while you're cooking breakfast and putting your ski boots on in the morning ski porn with level one. I'm like, how awesome is this? That we've got four completely different films that we're understandably having to have a pretty serious debate about. Uh, and I said right there, I'm like, five years from now, this is gonna be seen as a pendulum swing. Like the bar hasn't necessarily been raised, but it's certainly been altered. And so much like I was saying earlier, with like the, the, the path that pro skiers were taking, branching into different directions. Like I really saw that year in very much the same vein on like the ski filmmaking side of things. It wasn't just ski porn anymore. You know, you saw like so much more diversity and creativity. So sometimes it can be like apples to pineapples, right? <laughs> when you're comparing them, but, but the process itself is like, it's grueling, but it's enjoyable, you know? And, and we're confident in our collective decision-making, but are also like very aware that people might not agree. And, and that's fine. Like I've, I've been yelled at plenty of times and I'm like, great. Yeah. Like, but you know, I don't disagree with you, right? Like it's, it's, it's cool that we're disagreeing. You know, it's cool that we're having this debate. Do you, and I'm not sure if it gets as heated as like political debates, for example, but have you ever lost friendships or friendships have been strained as a result of a, a, a judgment call you made and, you know, in one of one of those situations? Yeah. Like temporarily strained. Mm -hmm. But usually it ends with an apology from the other party later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I, and I've said, I, it's like, again, I, it's, I, I'm like, it's not personal. It's business, mm -hmm. right? Like I love you, but I love everybody. 
Like I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm biased towards everyone. Right. So I, and I think most people understand that it, it was much, there's been some heaters on like the IF3 side of things. Uh, and certainly real ski from the public, never from the athletes. Everybody was like, you know, to pull back the curtain on that a little bit. And I can't speak for everybody, but generally when we would make decisions like the athletes and their film teams would be like, yep, you guys know what you're talking about. Right. And it was the public that would like shit on us. Right. Um, but that X games athlete selection committee side of things, it would, it would get ugly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like a little bit of behind the scenes about that because honestly, I think that is probably one of the most um, closed off hidden from the public processes in skiing. So like how do, what are the mechanisms for the athlete selection process? Like, because that, I don't, I don't even know where to begin with that. Sure. So I'll say two things and I, 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 you know, out of respect for the people who are still on the committee, I, I, I'm going to be a little cloak and dagger with it, but like one is, is that it's results-based, right? Lar- by and large, we're looking at results, at least during my tenure there. That's what we looked at. That's what we focused on. Right. Um, the second is, is that like the conspiracy theories about like energy drink money, which I know has from what I understand since I left has, has crept in a bit more. A lot of that was bullshit. Like a lot of that, like back in the day, like, Oh, Red Bull this or monster that, or Oh, so-and-so GoPro that like, no, in my nine years working there, I was asked for one thing, one once, well, actually two. There was, I think the second or third year we did real ski street monster put up the money for it. And they said, Hey, like, we'd love a monster athlete. We're like, it's a moot point. We're inviting Walsh back. The next year they asked for one, actually, so I guess it was three times. The next year they asked for one and we said, no, we were like, no, here's the six athletes we've picked. None of them are on monster. These are the best six athletes. And like, far be it for us to tell you how to do your job. And only one of them has an energy drink sponsor. So why don't you hook one of them up? And they were like, okay. So we like pushed back on that. The only other time was eons ago when we were like, we we're having like a big debate. The year that Tanner was making his comeback and, and Blunk was just like on the come up and he came out swinging and kind of like his first big year. And we were sort of stuck on like the committee was kind of split on like whether, you know, we should have Aaron in because he was and became the future or versus Tanner giving a swan song, giving Tanner a swan song. And without getting into the specifics, any of the conversations that were had, because I don't want to violate anybody's confidence, you know, that was the one time that ESPN stepped in. They were like, it's good. Mm-hmm. And we were like, yeah, for sure. Like, and I was very much on that side of it as with all due respect to Aaron, I was like, Aaron's, Aaron's going to have his time and boy, oh boy, has he. Right. But I, my comment to the rest of the committee was like, cause we knew that it was Tanner's kind of last hurrah on the pipe. Right. And I was like, can we give him a swan song? Cause he certainly does. He deserves it. That pipe will forever be his and Simon's and Sarah's that nothing will change that. I was like, come on guys, right? 
he did he, he did everything that was asked of him he went to new zealand open due to her he skied well like he really he wants this right and that was kind of like the one time they asked for something so a lot of those allegations that like oh it's like forces behind the scenes and all money driven at least when i was there total bs you mm-hmm. know it was just very like we were looking at results um the afp was a big guy like big guiding light for us and i can't believe i didn't say this earlier wow but i i worked for them for years for a number of years as their communications manager um so that ranking system was like a, a very very helpful tool and it was just who's skiing the best you know but inevitably you know when we had like 16 spots the top 10, 12 guys were in because they skied their asses off the year before. And then you would get four guys that would get kind of the bottom four. We would debate and, and have rigorous debates at times who would get the nod. And it meant everything to them. You know, they would call and they'd be like, thank you so much. Like, this is everything I've ever dreamed of. And, I'm, and I, my response every time was like, don't thank me. Like, you deserve it. Like, we're just looking at results, right? Like, you, you skied well. You earned your spot. It's got nothing to do with us. And then there would be five others who didn't make it in, who were fucking furious, mm-hmm. along with their agents, team managers, coaches, and if they were young enough, their parents. And for some reason, they all had my cell phone number. <laughs> so I would say d- during that period, the, definitely some some friendships were again temporarily strained like there was some fights where they would and i understood it like they it i understood why it was so personal for them but i think in some cases they were failing to see that it was business for me you know mm-hmm. and so and I, and I know that anyone listening will latch will like latch onto this section for fueling the conspiracy <laughs> stuff. So, so these like the quote unquote like dark forces that that influence what's going on behind the scenes, right. while largely non-existent, they come in the form of during my tenure. During yeah, during your time there, like who knows what what's going on now? But largely, they look like the people providing money, asking for certain accommodations, whether or not they're giving them or ESPN coming in and making like a decision on something that's debated. Yeah. The monster thing was never like, like at real ski, that wasn't a stretch. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we told them no one year, Right. And they were fine with it. The year before we were like, well, Walsh is getting invited back because he won people's choice. So whatever. And then the third year, Henrik was coming back. Like it was like, they were all like, yeah, okay. Whatever. You don't even need to ask. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, the vibe you know you're like yeah whatever sure like you've got awesome athletes mm-hmm. right but they were putting up like i mean the, the risk of sounding like a corporate sellout like they were also making that comp happen right like mm-hmm. if it wasn't for them like so people can complain all day long about that stuff right like oh monster this or that right? like, yeah, no monster no real real street mm-hmm. take your pick right or so, then even like the the Tanner situation, it's like, yeah, it, like good storylines keep people watching, and that keeps the event going. Yeah, I wasn't involved in that because I mm-hmm. I left like two years ago. Um, 
So I, oh, I'm I referring to the the Tanner versus uh, versus uh, Blunk situation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that was, you know, I mean that that's like a that's like a glimpse through the looking glass of like a lot of debates that we would have, you mm -hmm. know, when when you kind of get into those like bottom spots, right? And for me, it was just. I mean, they were sort of neck and neck in terms of like their accomplishments leading up to that event that winter, because we would, so when I was there, we would do three rounds of selections. We would do one in the fall, which was based on last year. We would do one before Christmas, which was kind of based on like do tour, Grand Prix or any events that had happened over the course of like the fall in New Zealand, which carried less, those events carried less weight, but you know, there'd be like a Grand Prix or a due tour, North Face Park and Pipe Open sometimes, we would look at like how people were skiing well going into this winter, right? And then the third round would be like early January, where it was like kind of the last spot or two in alternates. And then that would be based sort of like on like the next Grand Prix. And that was sort of like, and it changed year to year, which is like the flow of the comp schedule and which comps were and weren't happening. Um, but the, the second round was where it would get tough and my, my Christmas holidays would get ruined every year because like I would like without fail go back to my parents place sit down feet up stepdad hands me a rum and coke and like the phone would start ringing with angry agents right? um but you know we would we would always like have those discussions and when someone was neck and neck like you really really had to psychoanalyze it and for me it was just like a no-brainer, like, like in terms of like, like I came at it from like, I guess a personal standpoint. It's like, first and foremost, Tanner just deserved to be in, right? And second of all, like, look at what, he, like that he has done arguably, and it would be hard to argue more for the sport than anyone, you know? And he was on the comeback and he wanted to do one last X Games. And he's, he's proven himself, like, you know? He's gone to all the events. He's made finals, like, and I just like I just didn't feel comfortable like passing him over for like the next hot thing. Who, and that's not a knock on Aaron. He's become one of the best half pipe skiers of all time. But I knew that would I support, I knew that would happen. So I was like, yeah, let's put him as an alternate and, and you know give give ski boss like put him back in his rightful place, you know? It just like, it was, it was a no-brainer. And, and we would have those debates like constantly every year, there would be disagreements, you know? Um, you know, like a, an early source of contention in the groups where, um, and I'm pulling up, I'm really pulling back the curtain here, I'm probably saying more than I should, but whatever. Bold, I'm established, yeah. jaded. I can say what I want. <laughs> I've earned the right to say what I want. You know, like in the, in the early days of Kelly Sildaru coming up, like I I was I was pretty vocal against uh, uh against waiting, you know, because she was she was very young, she was very small, and I was really really hesitant to to put her on those courses, you know, just from like a safety standpoint. Like we let her forerun European X Games that one year and she got like select, she got toboggan off, you know? And so there for me as the years went on and, and I saw 
athletes getting invited to events at times I, where I disagreed with it. And then I would see those athletes go and get hurt at due tour or at X games. Like it really stuck with me, you know? And, and that was kind of the one time when like, I acknowledged the power of the role where it wasn't so much like, like you're this puppet master who gets to make or break careers. So like, I was looking at it as like, you could put someone in a position where they could end their career before it started. So I was like really vocal against putting Kelly in contests before she, her body mass had increased, right? Because like the, the due to her course can be like really dangerous because it's Breck and it's windy. And I know that they would be mad hearing that because they would tell us not to say the word wind and all this, but like, I just, I, I, I never wanted to see an athlete who wasn't at that level get heli evac'd, you know, off a slope style course. Like, it's like, let's wait. Right. So we had some pretty good debates there about that because Kelly was like, everyone was clamoring for her to be in because she was going to do a lot for women's slope style. She was going to push it, you know, like, and, take it to new heights and push the rest of the field. But I was like, oh, like, let's not put that girl in a position to end her career before it starts, you guys. Like, she's going to win everything for years and years and years, but, like, she's 90 pounds. Like, we need to think about safety here. And so we would have some, like, heated debates about that at times, you know, just in terms of, like, what was right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the, the competition side is, like, it's just a whole different beast. There's so many, there's so many things going on behind the scenes that are just like, I mean, you could talk all day about them and like, I just want to top, touch on one more thing before we do viewer questions. So, um, real ski. And yeah. I know that like people are so stoked on this and I'm like, this is probably the most engaged I've been with like a, like a video competition or just like the X games as, as of late. Um, so who said the criteria for, for the judging of those videos? Cause I, I feel like, you know, I have threes, obviously like very core community running mm -hmm. that, like is, is real ski running into ESPN setting some, uh, some weird criteria for judging, or is it still kind of driven yeah. by a core group of, of, of core group of the community? No, I, like I haven't done it the past two years. So I don't know if it, again, if anything's changed, I'm, I'm, I'm very intentionally out of the loop, you know? And I, and those guys like to like try to tell me what, like, They'll call me and be like, oh, so you, would you want to know? I'm like, no, like I, I want to be a fan again. I don't want to know who won. Don't tell me nothing, right? And and like I, I just like, I, I love being completely excluded from the process because it, it it makes me like excited again. You know, like I miss some of that stuff. Like, like, like it's, especially in like the context of like IF3, like I miss being in the theater and seeing the movie for the first time next to like a 15 year old kid, right? So like, I kind of wanted to go back to that with real ski. So I'm, I don't know if anything's changed, but in the early days, like, you know, my, my boss and I set the criteria, like when we started with backcountry, you know, just in terms of like the percentages, like there's a couple of different things that we look at. Um, and we started that with backcountry. The only directive we were given when we first did real ski backcountry was treat this like a slope style contest in the backcountry as opposed to like a film contest we wanted waited more for the tricks was the only thing that i was ever asked so we sort of like put our heads together and like 
talked about, you know, tricks, environment, creativity, and like editing being obviously a component of it. And then as it switched from backcountry to street, we just sort of adapted those percentages. And then there were years when the judges would be like, oh, I think we should maybe be waiting this a little bit more. And we would just like discuss it amongst ourselves. They never were like, like, I guess like people can't see me. I'm doing like the bald eagle claw hawk thing. Like they, they, they pretty much kind of let us like, they're like, you know, you guys are the experts was kind of the vibe, right? Like they, like what people don't, and, and you know this, having worked with them, like, you know, X Games itself, like ESPN runs the, pro, the, the production. They run the television production of it all, right? The actual sports side of thing is run by a separate contracted out organization, right? So there's always this vibe of like, hey, you, like, you guys know better than us, right? Like you guys are like, finger on the pulse of these sports and like you know eat sleep breathe it and you know certainly there are people within the ESPN organization that are like that like Tim Reed but largely it was like leave it up to the experts you know so there was never any really strict like it has to be done xyz because we say so they were like you 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 guys know better than us when you say it's contracted out to an organization are you speaking like like generally like like the individuals that make it up like make up their own organization or is there like an actual like organization with a name on it that handles there's an action yeah there's there's well like snow park technologies would do some stuff previously but there's an organization called eps events which uh they run like the sport organizing side of it from and i'm talking like you know the starters at the top telling the athletes when to drop in the judges the athlete selection committee, like they, 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 they oversee, pick everybody for that. Mm -hmm. Right. Largely. So it's one people who know what they're talking about. Right. In terms of like the athlete selection side of things, the judging side of things. And two with like the actual like event staff, the starters. So the athletes have a friendly face there. Right. As opposed to just like someone they know, like they can feel comfortable as opposed to just like some random dude from Miami. Who's just like, yeah, man, the skiing thing is crazy. Like, you know, so where ESPN was just like, they focus on the production of it all. It's, it's, you know, it's not a fair comparison, but it's, it's similar to the IOC and FIS, where FIS runs the sports, right? IOC oversees the event, you know, they're not the ones being like, well, I, we think you should do judging this way. Cause like the IOC doesn't know, right? They're like, yeah, we're the overseers. You guys are the experts. Like you guys are the ground floor, you know? Mm-hmm. I think I need to do like an episode uh, explaining the structure of like X like X Games and all these competitions because X Games is like it's an ESPN of own property, but there's so many contracted companies that do work for them. Of course, that, yeah, just that the average Joe would have no idea. Like I, I worked out there for um, this company called BME, and they yeah. and they like do, they do everything with the the courses. And when I reached out to just be involved in any way with ESPN. I was like, they're like, oh yeah, we'll stick you with BME. And I'm like, who the hell are they? Yeah, yeah. And I ended up doing construction work, which I had no idea I was going to be end, end up doing. But yeah, it's, a, it's just like those things that are hidden that are not necessarily intentionally hidden, but they're just like not obvious yeah. unless you're involved with it. No, exactly, right? Like it's not like any, it's not like some secret thing, right? And like my old bosses aren't going to listen to this and call me and be like, why'd you talk about e- EPS? Like, that's just like, uh, that's just like the organizational 
yeah like chart right and it's and 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 a big part of that is because like listen i've like i've spent time at espn at office and in a year old neck of the woods there in bristol right and uh weird town it's yeah. like espn and an elevator factory and that's it right so like i've been there and by and large like in terms of like the x games machine on the espn side of things like it's it's a job for them right like they're work they're working the production team is working x games like they would work college basketball or like a hockey game like it's just it's their job right like that like they're it's not their job to be like super engaged in like all of these storylines and whatnot the production team is a little bit more oriented on that but they go to the subsidiaries to like you know be in the know and like plan that out so for a lot of them it's like it's not that they don't care about x games that they that they care more about college football more than they care about x games but it's just like it's, it's their job it's their job to run a production and i personally i think it's like asinine to expect that like every single person at espn is going to be tuned into every single sport that you know the worldwide leader in sports covers like i don't know nothing about college basketball right so like i know lots about skiing but should i be expected to know about like like imagine that imagine working for espn and be like you have to be an expert on like 15 different sports like you would lose your mind right you don't even need to you don't even need to know about the sport that you're working on you just need to know how you fit like if your job is to handle the shipping of like if you're on operations you just want to make sure that all the equipment gets from one place to another. You don't care about the standings or anything like that. It's exactly. just, you want to do your job. Yep. Exactly. Same with like cameraman and the graphics teams and all that. Like, you know, that's like, like, you know, I've, I've been going to X games every year since 2008 and it's still, man, it still impresses me when I land in Aspen and I see that thing, like I see that machine, you know, and full operation. Like it's, it's a sight to behold, like how quickly that they, they rig all that up, you know, like I'm still impressed by it because there's a lot of people that work really hard to put that event on for people's entertainment and enjoyment. Right. Like, and, but to your point, like they all have different roles. So it's actually a good thing for when ESPN's like, Hey, we don't understand deep-seated intricacies and storylines about this particular sport out of the 15 that we do worldwide coverage on you tell us you guys like you guys know better than us for them to like take a step back and be like we're gonna run the production and we're gonna put on an awesome show but you guys are like on the ground floor to like make sure all the right people are there and like right you know things are being told like it's a good thing you know and so like they're they're a terrific organization. Mm -hmm. I can't say enough about them. Yeah. And so we could talk literally all day because you, you're just a, a wealth of knowledge. But I just got a, a few of your questions and we'll wrap up at least this episode. Maybe we'll do one in the future. Um, so I have a couple of your questions for you. Um, oh, viewer questions, though. Yeah, yeah. So I, I posted on uh, Instagram, had some people send them in. Um, so DMAC asks, uh, what's the top two to four items that you carry up with you when you head to the mountain? Uh, well, if I'm going back, I'm doing all my avalanche gear, obviously. 
so like probe transceiver shuttle. Um, my phone, <laughs> I guess. There's no snacks, no uh, intoxicants that uh, you uh, it, bring with it. No, no, you know what? I hate, I hate skiing drunk. I won't drink when I ski. I'm like really, really bad at it if I ski. Like if I have like a couple drinks, it's like, it's not, like, I don't know what it is. But um, I, I guess it depends on the setting. Like if I'm in the back country, then I've got like a pretty long list of things I bring, right? In terms of like safety. Um, if I'm just going skiing casually with friends, as anyone who works on like the film or is like involved in the film side of things will tell you like no backpack days are like those are the best, right? <laughs> I was like skiing back at my home ski hill this spring with one of our main photographers and we were just like gushing all day about that we were skiing without backpacks. We we're like, oh my God, this is so amazing. We have to like change your stand. We were talking about having to change our stance because we thought we were gonna fall backwards. So yeah, I'd say backcountry gear. Um, yeah, like water bottle, uh, some snacks, phone, phone charger, iPhone batteries died when it's really cold. Trust me. Oh yeah, cool. Um, so one of them we already covered, but shout out to Rolf for always uh, submitting questions. And uh, Whammeron, hopefully I pronounced that one right. I usually mess it up when he submits questions. Uh, he says, the only question ever, favorite ski movie and segment? Uh, Into the Mind, the Bella Coola segment. Mm -hmm. And there you go. And so my last question for you, um, and this is one that I want for myself as much as the uh, as as the audience. So if you if you were to give somebody a crash course in ski culture through movies what movies would you recommend to them Ooh, that's a really good question that's tough right because it's like ski culture and the word ski culture encompasses so much mm -hmm. you know it's like we could go back to like you know what let's do this let's do that let's let's do from then to now how about that? Yeah. Like if, if you want like a pretty good like sort of progression of things, like how the sports changed to where it is now, you got to start with Blizzard of Oz from Greg Stump for sure. Because that was kind of like, you know, as much as like the new Canadian Air Force and what those guys are all doing started free skiing, like it was very much inspired by Stumpy's films and Blizzard of Oz with like Plake and Scott Schmidt and Hatrip. That's kind of like was kind of when it really started, you know. And then I would go to um, to Thirteen from Poor Boys because that's when like the you know Twin Tip New School thing had kind of was just like right had really just like first established itself. Um. And then I would go, geez, this is tough. Um, I mean, I'm kind of trying to be diplomatic too, because I want, like, I don't want to like leave out MSP and TGR, like discredit everything that they've done. But I'm just thinking like the big standouts, like, like focused from MSP was like a really underrated film, you know? And it was like, you know, Seth kind of taking like Pollard and Pep and those guys under his wing. And right around that was session 1242. That's like a huge moment when like Pep did first switch backcountry, switch landings and pow. Um, and then I would go to, 
refresh level one when they had Warren Miller there in it. So gnarly and such a great, like the, the behind the scenes on their podcast for that, the whole lawsuit and everything. That's just like, yeah. And like, I was like, like I, I was having to cover all that with new schoolers and was talking to Berman a lot about it, but I didn't know, you know? So like I was at IF3 and I wasn't judging at the time and I went into the theater and when I heard Warren's voice, it was like my hair blew back. I was like, holy shit. I was like, how did you do this? I was just like, it was like this weird, like full circle thing for me, right? Yeah. That film, like it still gives me goosebumps if I watch it. I watched it again last year. I was like, it was like my youth and like my current state of life and employment just like kind of all coming together. So that was a big one for me. And then definitely like Sherpas, you know, when you see just kind of like the filmmaking side of things, like get pushed forward. And then, um, and then I, you know what? I like, I loved Return to Sender a couple of years ago. Like I, I thought, I, I, I really thought that what those guys did, uh, those four guys did at Sunker Tangiers upped the bar of like what's possible and like mixing Big Mountain and freestyle. It's like what Cooch and Adma and Logan and Carl were just, like Carl stuff is crazy. Like I remember seeing that and like, and I was kind of disappointed. It seemed like people like weren't really seeing what I was seeing where I was like, these guys just like, like it was here and they just moved it to here. And the crazy backstory on that, I was talking to Adma about it. He said the snow was terrible. And I was like, what? It didn't look that bad. He's like, no, it was brutal. It was like, soft layer on top of like crust so we were having to like relearn how to land because we, we were first landing like our tails were crossing and so if you go back and watch it in that context that they were skiing on crappy snow like you know and i guess part of the reason i picked that is because it's just kind of a more current film mm-hmm. but man i don't know good question whoever asked that holy that was uh that was just what i wanted to conclude it with oh, okay that was from okay. my mind yeah yeah um, yeah, well, that's all I have. I mean, obviously, if you were left off that list, it's not personal. I kind of blindsided you with that question. Not personal, it's business. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, yeah. there's so many films. It's just like, and, and and everybody would, I'm sure people listening to that would be like, oh, what about this? And what about that? There's so many, man, like propaganda. Global Storming was like one of my favorite movies. MS, that was a big one from MSP. Like, I don't know, man. Like when I did a podcast with Mark Warner, like with the No Pressure podcast, and we're specifically just about IF3 judging a couple of years ago. And he started it with being like, Jeff Schmuck has probably seen more ski movies than anybody alive. And I was like, what? And I was like, oh God, that's probably true. Right? Because I've watched every single one for like the past nine years. So it's not that they all blend together, but I'm like, I just like, I, I forget about certain things off the top of my head. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly why I wanted to ask you that question. Cause you've, you've consumed a lot of ski content. Yeah. yeah. So I'd go with that, go Blizzard of Oz, 13, focus slash session 1242, refresh into the mind. And then, yeah, watch a current one, watch return to sender, watch level one's last movie romance. Just, mm you know, give you a, give you an idea of the current state of being where we're at. 
Hell yeah. That's Jeff, great. thank you very much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure to meet you and talk to you and pick your brain for a little bit. Likewise, my pleasure. Pleasure to be here and uh, hope everybody is out there is looking forward to a great summer now that the world's beginning to reopen. It's been a, been a challenging year to say the least for all of us and, and an awful year for unfortunately too many of us, anyone who lost loved ones to this virus. You know, thoughts are with you and uh, you know, here's to getting back to some sense of normality, quote unquote, the new normal and uh, see you on the slopes and stay safe out there. If you're going the backcountry, take a course, get the gear, go out there with people you trust with, you, trust with your life and listen and learn from them so you can be put in a position where they'll, they'll trust you with theirs. Yeah.